we've got to part number two of Elisha, a tale of ridiculous faith. And uh, last week uh, we discovered what happens when God calls us uh, out of nothing. We don't need to be like some super incredible person to be called of God, that God calls us out of the mundane in life. Well, I wanted to start off today by uh, just sharing a story of uh, a telephone call that uh, I experienced back in the summer of 2009. Seems like yesterday, but it was like, what's that, six years ago now. It's like time just goes so quick. But in the summer of 2009, I was sitting in my office one Thursday morning, and I received a phone call. And on the other end, I heard the words, Alex, it's Paul. And I heard in that tone, in just those few words, I heard somebody who obviously was going through a situation that like none other in their life before. They, 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 the sadness in their tone, I could hear the tear in his voice. And I was like, hey, Paul, what's up? And he was like, it's my wife. She's just had And suddenly, all these thoughts come to me. I'm like, they never trained us for this in seminary or in pastor school. It's like, we, we, we're told how to study the Bible, not how to deal with broken marriages. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? For the next 10 minutes, I learned or I heard how Paul started to describe how the events unfolded in his wife's affair. Many marriages go through adversity like this, and many recover from it and are able to move on for it. But this was one of the saddest moments of my life, one of the saddest things I had ever heard, because I could tell in the tone of Paul's voice that he was done. There was no hope for this marriage. The anger, the hurt, the pain, the shame, the words he used to describe his wife, I knew that this marriage was There was no hope for this marriage at all. What I didn't realize at that time was that day was a day that Paul would start to live his life in a downward spiral that would get kind of out of control. Talking to Paul that day, I tried to give him some advice But he was having none of it. He didn't want to listen. And what he started to do is he started to, to, instead of move towards God, he started to move away from God, started to associate himself with some people who were giving him some bad advice. He sought advice from friends and family who basically were, were, were saying, she's wronged you, she's hurt you. It's like you need to take her for all that you can. Looking back, I could see in that story that the writing was on the wall for their marriage months before. I could see in their lives that they were starting to distance themselves from God. Both of them, they were worship leaders in their church. They had so much potential. They were were great musicians. They had a passion for God. But I could see in in the months before that they started to move their lives away from God. You started to see in their marriage that their marriage had been brought together by biblical principles. But now those biblical principles were not guiding their marriage. Instead, their marriage was being guided by pleasure over love. That they had had different groups of friends and he had his friends. She had her friends. She would go for a weekend with her friends. He would go through away for a weekend with his friends. And they started to drift apart as a couple. Then there was this fatal day in the summer of 2009 
when everything just went crazy. The result was that they found themselves caught in the middle of a battlefield in a war for their marriage. And this story, it reminds me of another story. It reminds me of a story that's actually found in the Bible, in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 3. And there was a guy who found himself caught in the middle of a battlefield with no chance of getting out, and he was on the verge of death. This story is about a man called King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat. Now, I'm not sure what his parents were thinking when they called him Jehoshaphat. Who calls their kids Jehoshaphat? I mean, you would think maybe it was like Jehoshaphat or Jehoshaphat. Who calls their kid Jehoshaphat? You can imagine the names he got called at school. But yet he rose to become the king of his country. And King Jehoshaphat, he was a good king. Last week, if you were here, we, did, we said that the nation of Israel had been uh, split up into two. The northern kingdom that still called itself Israel and the southern kingdom which called itself Judah. And King Jehoshaphat had become the king of Judah. He was a good king. He was a good example to others of how to live your life and how to lead others. Uh, as a king, and he followed the instruction of God. So Israel had totally turned their backs on God. They started worshipping all these false gods, set up idols, and, uh, and setting up temples to these other gods. But Judah had kept themselves pure before God, and Jehoshaphat, he followed the commands and the instructions of God. He was a good king. He only had one problem. He was a little too friendly. Like, too friendly. You're like, how can you be too friendly? No. Listen, he was a little too friendly. He wanted to be friends with everybody. I'm sure maybe you've got friends like that. They're like friends with everybody. But the problem was when some of his friends did wrong or they did things that they should have been called out on, he totally had a blind eye. He, he, he didn't call his friends out on things that they were doing wrong. And so he became friends with some of the kings of the neighboring countries around him. One of the friends was a man by the name of King Ahab. King Ahab was the king of Israel. He was an evil man. He was an evil king that drew people away from God, that encouraged people to to worship false gods. And he had a wife who was even eviler than King Ahab. And some of you may know of this name. Her name was Jezebel. So if you ever call a woman Jezebel, that is not a good term. So men in this room, do not call your wives or your girlfriends or even your sister Jezebel, okay? It's not a good term to use. But she was an evil lady. And so they had this friendship, Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Now when Ahab died, his son was called Joram. He became king of Israel. Now there's lots of kings. Remember, we're in the book of kings. So there's lots of kings that we're going to be talking about. But so Joram, he was not as evil as his mom and dad. Like, yeah, who is as evil as your mom and dad? But he was not as evil as his mom and dad, but he was still an evil king. He didn't build temples and idols to false gods, but he still encouraged people to walk away from the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
And so Jehoshaphat, he kept the family friendship going and he became friends with King Joram. Now, King Joram, he had a disagreement one day with the king of Moab. So I told you, lots of kings going on. King Moab owed every year Israel a bunch of livestock and sheep and, uh, and different grains that they would send to them as a repayment for a deal that was struck many years ago. And then one year, the king of Moab decided, hey, we're not going to give Israel, you know, the, the money. We're not going to pay the debt back to them. Joram, instead of like picking up the phone and saying, hey, where's my money? Let's work out some uh, an agreement or a payment plan. Joram got so mad, he's like, I'm just going to take him out. He's like, I'm just going to go to war against him and take him out. So he picks up the phone, he calls Jehoshaphat, and he's like, hey, fat man, you know, have fat boy, what's up? He says, Let's go to war against, against Moab. He's wronged me. We're going to bring it down. You know, like, like that kind of like all gangster kind of stuff they're doing. So he calls him up and he says, let's go to war. So Jehoshaphat, being the good buddy he was, says, okay, let's go. I'm going to get my men. Let me get my army. You get your army. Let's join together. Joram also picked up the phone and called another friend of his who was the king of Edom, another king. He was an evil king. And so he called him. He, he was in on the deal. And they decided we're going to go to Moab and we're going to take them out and we're going to destroy them. And so the three kings and their armies got together and they started to march to Moab. Now, the problem was this. Moab was about a seven-day march from where they were at. And the place that they had to march was through the desert and the wilderness. Now, Joram, if he had thought about it, he could have planned this out. He could have planned the attack, but he was so mad, he just wanted to take the king of Moab out right away. So he was like, let's go, without even thinking about it and planning about it. And they, they, they realized after seven days, they did not have enough water, they did not have enough food, and they were dying, and their animals were dying as well. After the seventh day, they got to the place where they were, they were so thirsty and they were starving. They were in a place where the sun was beating down and they realized that they did not have enough energy to go against the king of Moab and that they were going to die in this battlefield in this place. So what did they do? They did what many, many people do when they go through situations like this. They decided to blame God. They blame God. They were like, God, why did you bring us here to die? And I'm thinking, God's thinking, I never took you there to die. You did that all by yourself. But they started blaming God. God has brought us here so that we can die. And this is where we're going to pick up the, the situation or the story. In the second book of Kings, chapter 3, I'm going to start reading at verse 11. It says this, but King Jehoshaphat of Judah asked, is there no prophet of the Lord with us? If there is, we can ask the Lord what to do through him. One of King Joram's officers replied, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to be Elijah's personal assistant. Jehoshaphat said, yes, the Lord speaks through him. So the king of Israel, King Jehoshaphat of Judah, and the king of Edom went to consult with 
Elisha. So the three of them get together. They're blaming God. But then Jehoshaphat says, well, hold on. Let's call out to God and ask God. Let's find a prophet of God. So they come together and they realize there's this guy called Elisha, who is a prophet of God. Let's go ask him. Now, the last we heard about Elisha was this. We talked about it last week. He was a farm boy on his father's farm. And the great prophet, the celebrity prophet of the day, Elijah, came and asked him to be his assistant. And all we know is that Elisha left the farm. He burnt his plow, killed his oxen, and he went and he followed Elijah. That was in the first book of Kings, chapter 19. There's like six or seven chapters in between that and this. What's happened with Elisha? Well, actually hardly anything has happened with Elisha. We don't really hear about Elisha at all. We hear about Elijah, but all we, we don't hear anything about Elisha. All we know is probably that Elisha is getting Elijah's Starbucks in the morning. He's taking his dry cleaning and picking up his dry cleaning. He's taking his sick kids to the doctor. That's all we know about Elisha. He is Elijah's personal assistant. How many of you would love a personal assistant? I'm like, yeah, talking, yeah, I want a personal assistant, you know. My goal in life is to get a personal assistant. It's probably never going to happen. That's why we had a kid, you know. Maybe they can be my personal assistant, but it's not going to happen. But Elisha was his personal assistant. And what we discover, we discover that he has made this great statement of faith and followed Elijah and then nothing at all. But this is what I've discovered. Great men and women of God often spend years in obscurity working under other godly people. I'll say that again. Great men and women of God often spend years in obscurity working under other godly men and women. Most people don't spend their entire lives in the limelight. Unless you're Justin Bieber. That's it. Nobody else spends their entire life in the limelight. It takes years in the background before you can actually proceed to the foreground. And some of you, you're in this place today and you're in your 20s and maybe early 30s. And you're thinking, why isn't this happening for me? Why? I've got this dream. I've got this what I want to do. Why is nothing happening for me at all? Because it takes years in the background preparing before you can go into the foreground. But one of the guys who actually helped us start this church, his name is Rob Anderson. Rob was an IT guy who worked uh, for Hopkins in, in Baltimore. He hated his job with a passion. He wanted to be a, uh, a magician. And uh, when we first met him, I mean, he had some good tricks. He made a lot of mistakes and things. But he started to work and work and work. And he decided about three years ago to go to Las Vegas to pursue his dream. And so he decided to burn his plow and to kill his oxen. And he decided to move out to Las Vegas with nothing. He didn't know what he, he was going to do. All he knew, he had this dream to be a magician. He, I, 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 Rob told me, he worked so many different jobs He hustled on the street doing magic, you know, trying to be a street magician. And he was in the background day after day after day after day. 
trying to pursue his dream. Two weeks ago, he got a gig. He got a TV show on MTV, which I think is pretty cool. You know, it's pretty cool. But the reality, he has spent years and years and years in the background before he was able to step into the foreground. And this was Elisha. So what we find out that Elisha has been the personal assistant to Elijah. And then Elijah one day says to him, okay, Elisha, I'm out of here. I'm like, my days on this earth are done. I'm no longer going to walk on this planet anymore. And, and Elisha heard about it. And as soon as Elisha said that, Eli, uh, 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 Elijah said that, Elisha said this. He says, well, if that's the case, give me a double portion of your blessing. Basically, we're saying, what you have done, I want to I take into overdrive. I want to take it. I want to like drink some Monster and some Red Bull, put it on steroids, and blow this thing up. That's what he's basically saying. I want a double portion of your blessing. And that is my dream for our kids. I pray that our kids will be doubly blessed to what we've been blessed. I pray that our kids will be doubly as effective for the kingdom of God as what we have been. I pray that our kids will reach double the amount of people that what we will ever reach. That's why here at Generation Church, we put so much time into the kids ministry and youth ministry. Because we believe in the next generation and we believe that they are going to be a greater generation than what we are. And this was Elisha who said, give me a double portion. So what happens is... Elijah then is taken up to heaven in a chariot. I'm like, it's kind of just the strangest story ever. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 2. He's taken up into heaven in this chariot. And as he goes up to heaven, his cloak or his coat, which signified, was a symbol to him that he was the prophet of God, fell to the ground. Elisha ran over to the cloak and he picked it up and he cried out to God. And this is what he said. He said, God, as you were with Elijah, will you be with me as well? And in his despair, he took the coat. He walked over to a river and he threw the coat into a river. Immediately, that river split into two. You know, like, like Moses, let my people go with a stick. The Red Sea split into two. Just like that. And Elisha immediately knew that the God that was with Elijah is now with me. Everybody started to hear about it. Suddenly, he's all these years in the background. He moves into the foreground. Everyone recognizes Elijah as a prophet. Elijah then goes to the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho, people are dying. People are getting sick because the water is not good. It's dirty. There's, there's bacteria in the water. And they say, Elijah, uh, sorry, Elisha, help us. What can we do? And Elisha, like some magic trick, pulls some salt out of his pocket. He throws into the water and the water is purified. In that moment, God is using Elisha to, to take people who are dying uh, so that they can find life. And then he leaves Jericho and he's walking down the road and 40 teenagers come up to him and they start making fun of him because he's got no hair. 
And they start saying, hey, boldy man, hey, bold, 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 you lost your hair, ha, 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 go wear a toupee or something. You know, they start making fun of him. And what this shows us, it shows us that unless he was one of those unfortunate guys, and maybe you might be here today, and I'm sorry, but you're like in your 20s and 30s and you've lost all your hair. I'm like, really sorry. God bless me with my hair, not you. I apologize for that. It wasn't my fault, you know. But, but most people who are losing their hair, they are older in age. And it shows us that Elisha wasn't, when he came to the forefront, wasn't a young guy. He wasn't in his 20s or maybe 30s. He was older. He had served his time. And it shows us that God can use people of any age at all. Don't let age be a factor when it's serving God. But they start making fun. But this is also what we learn. Never make fun of a man with no hair. Okay? Never make fun of a bold man because this is what happened. Elisha cursed them. And then two bears come out of the woods and kill all 40 teenagers. Now, some of you, you got teenagers. You wish a bear would come out of the woods and kill your teenager. But it isn't going to happen. So don't get cursing teenagers. He was the prophet of God. And so Jehoshaphat called for Elisha. Jehoshaphat and Joram are blaming God while Joram's blaming God. And we see from this moment they call Elisha and Elisha comes and helps them. We can see exactly how God can solve a crisis and what ridiculous faith can really do. So 2 Kings chapter 3 verse 12 says, So Jehoshaphat said, The Lord speaks through him, meaning Elisha. So the king of Israel, King Jehoshaphat of Judah and the king of Edom went to consult with Elisha. Why are you coming to me, Elisha asked the king of Israel. Go to the pagan prophets of your father and mother. But King Joram of Israel said, no, for it was the Lord who called us three kings here only to be defeated by Moab. Remember again, he's blaming God for his situation. Verse 14, Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, who I serve, I wouldn't even bother with you except for my respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Now bring me someone who can play the harp. While the harp was being played, the power of the Lord came upon Elisha. This is the first thing we see about in this story is this. Your biggest need can become your greatest blessing if it drives you to God. I say that again. Your biggest need can become your greatest blessing if, and it's a big if, it drives you towards God. Jehoshaphat was in a situation he should never be in. He was hanging out with people who were not good for him. He was in the middle of a battlefield in a battle that was not even his. He should not have been there. The need for water was so great. But yet, instead of blaming God like Joram did, Jehoshaphat understood this. I can imagine Jehoshaphat that day reciting Psalm 21. and Psalm, Sorry, Psalm 121. And Psalm 121 says this. It says, I look to the hills and ask, does my help come from there? Then he says, no, my help comes from the Lord. 
And Jehoshaphat understood this. Even though no matter what situation I am in, even though we're on the verge of death right here, my help comes from the Lord. My help comes from God. See, Jehoshaphat was beginning to understand that need, need, your needs either drive you towards God or they drive you away from God. Your needs drive you towards God or away from God. So my friend Paul, who was having his marital issues, he had a need and that need started to drive him away from God instead of towards God. But Jehoshaphat found out that day that when need drives you towards God, some of the greatest stories of faith and blessing come out on the other end. Some of the greatest stories I know in my life, some of the greatest stories in my life have come out of some really serious needs when we're like, we don't know what to do. Because when it drives you towards God, these great stories come out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, there was a guy called the Apostle Paul. Not my friend Paul, but a guy called the Apostle Paul. And he had a weakness He called it a thorn in his flesh that he couldn't shake. He prayed three times to God that God would remove it. And God replied to him and God said this, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He understood that when we are weak in ourselves, when we have needs, that's when we drive ourselves towards God and that's where God becomes strong in our lives. So maybe you've got some marital issues or you've got some money issues or some health issues. Maybe you've suffered rejection or you've got problems in your job. They will either drive you towards God or drive you away from God. But when they drive you towards God, he turns your needs into blessings. And he goes from being absent to being present in that situation. For your biggest need can turn into your greatest blessing if it drives you towards God. Second thing, you have to dig out the pool before you can swim. You have to dig out the pool before you swim. I'll tell you what I mean by that. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 16. So Elisha's brought a harp out. I mean, like, who has a harp in the middle of a battlefield? I don't know. Somebody obviously did. Starts playing the harp. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and this is what it said. And this is what the Lord says. This dry valley will be filled with pools of water. Now, I read from the New Living Translation. There's lots of different translations of the Bible. And uh, most of them are, 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 are almost identical, just some different wordage here and there. I love the New Living Translation. It's a great translation. But in this verse, they kind of didn't translate it that well. If you've got like a, a King James or New King James or American Standard uh, Bible, they translated this verse really well because this is really what it should say. It should say this. This is what the Lord says. Fill this valley with pools for water or dig ditches so that this valley can be filled with water. In verse 17, he says, you will neither see wind or rain, says the Lord, but this valley will be filled with water. You will have plenty for yourselves and your cattle and other animals. But this is only a simple thing for the Lord, 
For he will make you victorious over the army of Moab. And you will conquer the best of their towns, even the fortified ones. You will cut down all the good trees, stop up all their springs, and ruin all their good lands with stone. So this is what Elijah says. God says, okay, start to dig some pools or stop to dig some holes in the ground so God can fill it with water. Think about this for a moment. They have just marched for seven days without food or water in the desert. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm digging a hole in the backyard, I want to do it where it's like just rained, not when there's been a drought for months. Like, so last year, my, my parents came and visited us, and my dad was helping me with some yard work, and British people do not know what 90 degrees feels like, and so we're outside, and it is 95 degrees. My, my mom is bringing, like, hot tea outside. I'm like, what are you thinking? My dad's like, oh, thanks, you know? I'm like, it's 95 degrees. Bring some cold tea, please. But so, so we're outside, and we're doing this yard work, and my dad's... You know, after like 10 minutes, he's like digging in my yard and he's like wiping the, sp- the sweat off his brow. And he's like, wow, he's like, I don't know what's gone into me. This is hard work. I'm like, dad, because it's 95 degrees outside. What are we even doing out here? Digging holes in my yard, you know? And so this is the same for these guys. They are now they are tired. It is hot. It is the, the ground is so hard. And this is what God says. Dig some holes. Think about it. How uncompassionate does that sound? I need water. I need something to eat. I need something to drink. And God says, oh, i got a good idea. Why don't you dig some holes? How many of us feel like that with God at times? We ask God stuff. Like, God, I can't make my checkbook balance. Too much, you know, too many bills, not enough income. God, I, 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 I can't make my marriage work. I can't take the, make these relationships work. And, and God turns around and says, oh, well, how about do this instead? You know, it's like, I got no money. Like, I, I, I need more money. And God says, I got an idea. Why don't you like, give what you have to the poor? You know, that's a good idea. And you're thinking, God, did you hear what I said? I have no money. It's like, yeah, give to the poor. Or, you know, you're going through some marital issues and you're like, God, help me with my marriage. Help me. And God says, hey, there's this other couple over there. They're having some issues. Why don't you go and help them? You're like, God, didn't you hear what I said? I have issues. And he's like, yeah, go and help these people. See, that's the way God works at times. God sometimes asks us to do stuff that doesn't make any sense to us at all. Or you cry out to God in your need and he does something contrary to your need. But this was God showing Jehoshaphat what ridiculous faith can really do. Because ridiculous faith relies completely on God. Not on what we can do completely on God. See, God was going to send the rain. God was going to send the water. But think about it. If God had just made it rain... We're in a desert. What would have happened to that water? The water would just wasted away. They, they, they had nothing to hold the water. God was saying, hey, before I actually send the rain, how about you do something to gather the rain so when the rain comes, you can actually, actually drink the water instead of watching the rain come and then the rain just goes away. See, you have to dig a swimming pool before you can swim in a swimming pool. 
You don't just see like some water out in the street. You're like, hey, let's go diving into that, you know? And then suddenly you hit the blacktop and like your head hurts and you've gone all crazy in your head. You have to dig a swimming pool so that you can fill the swimming pool. And it's the same with faith. Sometimes you have to dig before God can fill it. In James chapter 2, it tells us that faith, or another translation, action without works is dead. And digging ditches is the action to faith. Sometimes you have to dig out the pool before you can swim. What is God asking you to dig in your life right now? You've got a need. What is God asking you to dig? What is God asking you to do? Maybe God asking you to give, or God is asking you to forgive, or God is asking you to reach out a hand of friendship to, 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 to somebody. Maybe God is asking you to go back to school, or God is asking you to search for a new job, or maybe God is even asking you to quit your job. I, I don't know. What, what is God asking you in your life right now? What is he asking you to dig? Number three, God's solutions are far more creative than our plans. God's solutions are far more creative than our plans. Look at this. The next morning, so they dug the holes. Next morning, at about the time when the morning sacrifice was offered, water suddenly appeared. Let's just pause for a moment. They have dug the holes the day before. Suddenly they dug the holes, there's no water. They go through the night and there's no water. Have you ever felt like that? You've done something for God. You've obeyed God. Like God has asked you to do something. You've done it. But then you see nothing at all. Nothing. But God's timing is always perfect. And if God had sent the water the day before, it wouldn't have had the effect that it's about to have for these people. Because this is what happens. The water was flowing from the direction of Edom. And soon there was water everywhere. So God has answered their prayer. They wanted water. Meanwhile, when the people of Moab heard about the three armies marching against them, they mobilized every man who was old enough to strap on a sword and they stationed themselves along their border. But when they got up the next morning, the sun, the morning sun was shining across the water, making it appear red to the Moabites like blood. It's blood, the Moabites exclaimed. The three armies must have attacked each other, killed each other. Let's go, men of Moab, and collect the plunder. I'm like, who talks like that, you know? Let's go to Walmart and collect the plunder. You know, verse 24, it says, But when the Moabites arrived at the Israelite camp, the army of Israel rushed out and attacked them until they turned and ran. The army of Israel chased them into the land of Moab, destroying everything as they went. Israel won the day. See, if you had asked any military expert, they would have said this. Okay, let's devise a plan. Maybe you, you go on the left, plan, uh, left flank, I'll go on the right We'll go on the right flank, maybe someone from the middle, maybe let's send some like, like the Air Force over, you know, to, to, to get in behind enemy lines, send some parachuters in, let's send some spies in, let, let, let's, do, let's do something so we can catch them by surprise like that, right? But God says, no, nah, I got another idea. Who would have thought that water would be the solution? See, and this is just so God, 
We ask God in our time of need and then when God provides, he doesn't just provide our need, he takes our need and then he takes us to another level. The Bible says, Jesus says that when God gives, God gives pressed down, shaken together and running over. When God gives, God gives more than what you need. He'll give the 100% and add another 20% on top because that's what God does. See, they just prayed for water, but God gave water and the victory. In one go together. See, at times we think that we are so intelligent. We think we know the best. That we are smarter than God. We're like, God, what are you doing? This is what we should be doing. This should be the plan that we are doing. But the reality is, no matter how intelligent you think you are, no matter how much of a planner you think you are, no matter how strategic you think you are, or smart that you think you are, there is always one who knows so much better, and that is God Almighty. He created the heavens and the earth. He made this world spin around space the way it does. The way that you breathe, how you walk, how you eat, how you lose your hair like Elijah. God created that. Could you have done that? See, Isaiah chapter 55, 9 says this, that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. See, you cannot think like God. You are not as creative as God. And faith isn't just about hoping for God in your time of need. Faith is walking on the path that God is creating in front of you. The Bible says that he will create a roadway in the wilderness. And it's about seeing that roadway and walking in the path that God has taken for you or God has created for you. Because when you walk on that path, you will see the greatest victories. See, you did your part when you dug the ditch. Faith with the works. Now watch as God takes center stage. I still wonder today, my friend Paul, what his life could have been like if he had just listened and he had used his needs to drive him towards God instead of away from God. It's about three months after that Thursday morning phone call. He called me one evening. He said, hey, Alex, I just want to let you know, I filed for divorce today. Biblically, he had every right. His wife had cheated on him. But yet something deep in my soul said, this isn't right. And I remember being on the phone and God just gave me this boldness with Paul. And I remember God speaking to me and God saying, you need to tell Paulie to dig a ditch. And just as Elisha told Jehoshaphat, dig a ditch, I felt God say to this, say, tell Paulie to dig a ditch and this is the ditch. You need to tell your wife, I forgive you. Wasn't it a ditch to dig? She had cheated on him. She had hurt him. He was in pain. And I remember him saying to me, he goes, Alex, I can't do that. You don't realize what she has done to me. I said, Paulie, there is bitterness that is growing in your heart. If you do not say this, then it's going to continue to grow and it's going to destroy your life. Paulie was like, I cannot say that. That was the last meaningful conversation I've ever had with Paulie. I've seen him a few times since. And... You know, we've, we've, we've seen each other, we've talked, but we've never had a deep conversation like that. 
From that moment, he refused to dig that ditch. He decided to drive himself more and more away from God. Remember, this was a guy who was so talented. He would lead worship in churches. People were worshiping God when, 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 when he led them and he sang and he played. But yet, because he refused to dig a ditch, he started to walk away and away from God. Six years later, he is still dealing with the hurt and the bitterness of that moment. I wonder, I just wonder, if he had driven himself towards God, dug the ditch, I wonder where his life would be right now. Yeah, maybe his his marriage was over. Maybe that, that was unrepairable. About the freedom he would have experienced. I wonder if God could have healed their marriage. These two hearts, these broken hearts. I wonder how many people he would have been able to reach. How many other marriages he would have been able to save. Because he had a story to tell. But it had to start with him digging a ditch that he refused to dig. Don't ever let your circumstances drive you to blame God. Instead, let them drive you towards God. Then when God speaks and asks you to do something, dig that ditch. Even if it doesn't make sense, dig the ditch and watch as the creative creator of this universe shows you that his ways are so much higher and better than your ways. It happened for Jehoshaphat and it can happen for you. Let's bow our heads in prayer.